from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. I'm President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, February 13th. Today, the spread of misinformation about coronavirus, what a tire company owes a country, and sumo wrestling while female. So the misinformation around coronavirus has taken a lot of different forms. Some of it has been images. Some of it has just been inaccurate numbers, uh, totals of how many people have died from the virus, how many people are infected. And then some of it is a little more detailed. It's scientific literature that's pointing to inaccurate claims of how the virus spreads or what can remedy the virus. So it's kind of a mix of all sorts of different things happening right now. I'm Kim Belware. I am a national reporter on the general assignment desk for The Post. And where is this misinformation coming from? Two researchers who I spoke to who track this kind of information and how it spreads, Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West of the University of Washington, they said that right now it's not clear. We don't know if there's a specific foreign government that's behind them, if it's, you know, like the Macedonian troll farm that became notorious after the 2016 U.S. presidential election. But whatever the sources are, they have some recognizable strategies that definitely align with things that we've seen from a hostile government. Here's Carl Bergstrom. It's not that they necessarily want to misinform us about the coronavirus in particular, but it's rather that the coronavirus offers a ready vehicle for spreading disinformation and reducing the quality of information that we see on the Internet. Hearing that is really surprising to me, because when I think about misinformation having to do with something like health or illness, I generally assume that it's coming from well-meaning people who may not understand a lot about science, but they're really scared and they're panicked and they're making poor decisions and believing the wrong thing. But the idea that this is coming as part of like an organized campaign, potentially from something like a Macedonian troll farm, the same people who tried to mess with the 2016 election, that is very surprising to me. Why would there be an interest in doing that and spreading false information about something like a virus? Some of the political motivations from bad faith actors, like what we saw with the 2016 election, really have to do with overloading people and giving them so much information to where they can't really parse what's true and what's not. This is Jevin West. If I gave you the shortest answer possible, is to road trust in the institutions that we depend on. Because when you sow that kind of chaos, it really undermines people's faith in institutions like the CDC, the World Health Organization, your local government, mainstream media. And that can be really effective for certain hostile governments who want to undermine the stability of a rival country like the United States or like China. Here's Carl Bergstrom again. Any opponents of the current regime in China might like to make it look like the regime had handled the current situation badly, might like to make people distrust what was going on in China, might like to make people suspicious about uh, whether they could believe the information coming out there, might want to reduce the appeal of China as a trade partner or a destination. And why do you think that these seeds of misinformation end up being so effective and being spread so quickly? Some of it is 
there's so much unknown about the coronavirus. A lot of research is happening. Things are developing quickly and not a lot has been confirmed because it's so early in learning about the outbreak. And that's really hard for people because we want that certainty. When that certainty isn't there, we latch on to people who offer us promises of certainty. But the other reason is that people are just very susceptible to it. You know, some of the experts that I spoke to said, in particular, uh, during a health crisis, when people are worried about their health, they're worried about their family's health, they want answers in, you know, whatever form they can find them. So they're especially susceptible to reading into and believing things that might not pass scientific muster. I also wonder if In this case in particular, part of why misinformation is spreading so quickly is because of racism and stereotypes about Asia or or diseases that that are started in Asia and that the misinformation that is being put on the Internet confirms a lot of that racism that people have. Yeah, the experts were saying that uh, some of this misinformation does seem to be geared toward getting people to take a isolationist or otherwise racist view towards Chinese people or towards Asian people. And we've also heard anecdotally there's been, you know, rises of reports of discrimination towards Asian people even in the U.S. And so certain types of misinformation seem to have the end goal of getting people um, perhaps in the U.S. or in other countries outside of China to say, you know, let's keep all Chinese people out of our country. You know, let's close our borders. Let's round them up. Let's keep them separate. And then in some cases, it's the trolls themselves who are putting out those statements, who are trying to encourage discourse that that says those things. Yeah. And that goes back to the whole objective of just sowing discord, because especially if the agitators are maybe a hostile government, if you can sow discord between two superpowers like China and the United States, then maybe there's another country that stands to benefit. So what can people do to figure out what's real and what's fake online as they're trying to learn more about coronavirus and what's happening? It's not the most satisfying answer because some of what can help, according to experts, is calming down a little bit on how often you need to be updated on the latest info. And there is, a, I think, a good argument to be made that um, if it's not really going to affect your life and your family's life, if you live in Washington, D.C., for example, how many people in Wuhan have died from the virus, then you can probably save yourself a good amount of risk of being exposed to misinformation or of amplifying that misinformation by not going down the rabbit hole and trying to find every latest update as possible. This is Jevin West again. And so, you know, one of the things that we talk to, you know, when we talk to the public and, and we talk to students, it's just to slow down a little bit, put a little bit of friction in the line. We love, you know, if people would think just a little bit more and share just a little bit less because that, that sharing, too, is what's really amplifying it. With all the discussion around bots, and I'm, you know, the first one to say it is something we should be very concerned about, it's, it's actually all of us that are spreading all this information. You know, the bots are kind of leveraging our social networks and our reputations within our friendships. You know, go to the reputable websites, um, go to the World Health Organization, go to medical journals that have been peer-reviewed, and go to trusted news sources, particularly ones that have established a track record in foreign reporting, in health reporting, in 
epidemic and disease reporting because then you know that they have some expertise in, in what they're telling you and they've been able to hopefully vet and properly contextualize it. Kim Belware is a national reporter for The Post. Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West are researchers at the University of Washington. What really has stayed with me is driving through these rows of trees until you get to a worker camp. And there are these little kind of beige brick houses where people have been living, sometimes without electricity. And when I came upon one, I saw just tons of belongings in the street, like beds and sheets and clothing and tarps. That's Danielle Paquette. She's the Post's bureau chief in West Africa, and she was reporting from a Firestone rubber plantation in Liberia, where workers are being laid off because of a drop in the price of rubber. And we wondered what was going on, and it was explained to us by the workers that they had tried to grow rice because they weren't making enough money to eat. And they had accidentally destroyed some rubber trees as they set fires to clear uh, land to grow this rice. And they were fired after that and evicted from their homes and sleeping because they're Because they're living on the Firestone property, so Firestone can just say, exactly. not only are you not working here anymore, but you don't live here anymore either. Yeah, you don't just lose a job, you lose your house. And so they're out there, it's the rainy season, sleeping under tarps because they just tried to grow food to, to live. And, you know, Firestone said, yeah, we had to do that because it was against our rules. We warned them it could hurt the trees. And these people were saying... While we understand that, we're also going hungry. So it's just this impossible situation. So Firestone is this giant tire company. Uh, it's, like, the, like the Firestone tires on people's cars. Like oh, yeah. This is the company. Started out in Ohio you know, more than 100 years ago. It's the biggest private employer in Liberia, and it set up shop there in the 20s. The country has largely built its economy around this company, and now they are undergoing these giant layoffs. Liberia was still super young as a nation when Firestone stepped in. The search was actively directed by Harvey S. Firestone, Jr., who, after a study of many tropical lands, selected Liberia for the Firestone American industrialist looking for a place to grow his empire, literally, with rubber trees. And uh, he was seeking cheap land. America had this weirdly close relationship with Liberia because Liberia was founded by um, freed American slaves. So Firestone steps in at a time when Liberia is pretty poor, super in debt to European banks. So here's this guy saying, I'll come, I will create jobs, and in exchange, you give me a million acres of land at six cents an acre for up to 99 years. The vanguard of any rubber operation is an army of men with axes. To fell these giant trees, some of which are centuries old and as much as 10 feet in diameter, teams of axemen using a narrow head. And Liberia at the time accepted, thinking that this kind of long term bet 
would pay off, which it did in many ways. There was this employment. There was more um, foreign investment that followed. The rubber industry flourished. It has always been the desire of Firestone to contribute to the social and human, as well as the economic progress of Liberia. Over the years, Firestone has established free schools, modern hospitals, and well-staffed clinics. But at the same time, there have been years of labor abuse allegations, allegations of child labor being used on this plant, allegations of workers uh, working such long hours that they're becoming injured and they do not have the proper safety equipment. And now we're just at this new chapter in this kind of complicated history as the company starts laying off more workers than it ever has. And now these people are getting letters in the mail. Um, one man who'd worked there for 22 years opened one and saw, starting tomorrow, your job is over. Hmm. And hey, you have 14 days to leave this company housing you've lived in for two decades. You know, it's it's just so fast. And people feel the same word kept coming up. It was shock, shock. And there's just a lot of fear, like we don't know what to do next. People are losing their jobs at a time where it's really hard to find any work at all. Liberia is, is registering almost no economic growth. So I set out to find out what happens when the biggest employer is, is cutting all these jobs at a time when it's hard to find ways to make money practically anywhere. So how many people are actually employed by Firestone right now? A couple years ago, it was up to 8,000 or so. Uh, now it's closer to 5,000. And that number just keeps shrinking. Firestone is cutting 13% of its workforce as of now, and that's translated to some 800 people or so. But they've hinted at that this is going to be a process that will continue. The way some uh, lawmakers in Liberia put it, it's like the auto industry for Detroit, except for an entire country. So what are the implications for the country now that Firestone seems to be putting the brakes on the business that it does there? Right. It's causing all this alarm. People are saying this is this long time, well-paying compared to other industries in Liberia employer that now at a time when economic growth is almost at zero, it's pulling away. What happens next? All we have is that big question. And as people are panicking, labor groups in the United States and elsewhere are concerned with the way Firestone has gone about shedding these jobs. And that has sparked this question, which is, what do these global titans owe their most vulnerable workers? These are people who make 72 cents a day. And when they lose that paycheck, some people told me they don't even have enough money to move off the farm. This is a farm the size of Albuquerque. Tens of thousands of people live on it. And once they don't have that money anymore, they cannot afford a cab fare to leave. They don't have cars. It's just this giant mess that there's, there's no easy answer here. And I'm curious if the folks that you talk to, if they kind of recognize the irony here that Liberia is and the fact that there is plentiful cheap labor there, that that is what helped Firestone become so successful from the get go. And that now when Firestone doesn't really need them anymore, that they can sort of abandon their workers and abandon the country that has really relied on them. Yeah, nobody disputes that this scene is ugly. Firestone couldn't have grown the way it did without these workers. They didn't have the workforce here in the United States or in other uh, more developed countries. But I, I wonder if there's a flip side to that, that having a country that is so reliant on this foreign corporation that that might not be good for Liberia in the long run and that having something like that 
start to leave the country or become less powerful in the country, that it's it's good for the health of and the independence of Liberia. That could be the silver lining, according to some economists in Liberia right now who are saying, why have we spent all this time catering to U.S. giants or American power brokers when we could be developing our own manufacturing sector, we could be harnessing our own natural resources? Because so often these foreign companies come in, they exploit workers, the resources, and then they hog all the benefits. So there is some movement toward we need to start over and we need to be more independent. And that that's hard uh, when you're in the middle of your own economic crisis and these outside actors have long exploited you since, you know, the birth of this country. So there, there are lots of conversations on the ground, like how do we turn this around? And this question of what Firestone owes its workers and owes the country of Liberia, what does Firestone say about that? Like, do they feel that they owe anything to their workers or to Liberia? So Firestone takes the stance that, hey, we're this giant company. We've pumped millions and millions of dollars into your economy for years and years. We're one of the highest taxpayers. We give back. When Ebola struck Liberia a few years ago, they were out there building hospitals and helping in the response. So it's complicated. You hear from labor groups like, we, we've done all this for you. We've provided all this manpower. Uh, after working 20 years in the factory, our backs hurt. We can barely see because of the chemicals in the rubber factory. You know, we've done all this for you. Why now as you pull away? Or right, why now as you have layoffs? Can't you give something back to us? Danielle Paquette is the West Africa bureau chief for The Post. And now, one more thing. So this summer, the Olympics will take place in Tokyo. They'll be staged without the country's most signature and sacred pastime. Sumo wrestling. My name is Rick Mace, and I'm a sports reporter for The Post. There have been many efforts over the years to add sumo wrestling to the Olympics. Those efforts have largely failed. And a big reason is that sumo is still seen as a male-dominated, male-centric sport. We visited a dojo on the southern part of Tokyo called the Oto Arashi Dojo. This is a dojo with a lot of school-aged children. It's one that, you know, years ago would have been entirely boys. When we were there, it was almost 50% boys, 50% girls. The first exercise is called the shiko. The shiko is a traditional way to start the practice. The wrestlers kind of stomp with their left foot, then their right foot. Symbolically, this is a way they kind of ward off spirits and maintain the sanctity of the, the sumo ring. So years ago, back in 1991, the International Olympic Committee passed a rule and said that if we're going to add any new sports, it has to be equal for both genders. So if we're going to add a men's sport, there must be a women's version as well. Well, that complicated things for anyone that wanted to add sumo to the Olympics. 
for generations, sumo was a sport that was for men. Men were the ones who wrestled, men were the ones who officiated, men were the ones who, who watched for the most part. But the efforts to add sumo to the Olympics didn't stop there. And, and slowly, the guardians of the sport began making concessions and kind of opening the doors a little bit for women to participate and take part in this sport. Now, because women are barred from partaking in the professional version of the sport, there's really no outlet for them to, to participate in sumo wrestling beyond their, their college years. A professional sumo wrestler, a man, could earn a living. He can, you know, make money, earn fame by continuing to wrestle into his 30s. Women, for the most part, they're done by the time they hit 20 or really by the time they finish with college. There's no one to wrestle, there's no tournaments that will include them, and there's no way to make money in the sport. Gender aside, people around the sport are very concerned about the future of sumo. My colleague, Akiko Kashiwagi, and I spoke to one of the dojo coaches. Takamitsu Segaguchi explained that even boys aren't flocking to the sport right now. To be sure, sumo is different in that you have to become naked. Uh, and uh, actually, among even the boys in elementary school, it's not that popular because people uh, feel embarrassed about uh, showing their bottoms. And, or people don't want to become fat. So in many ways, even as Japan's still learning to accept and appreciate the women's side of the sport, these female competitors, they kind of hold the key uh, to the sport's future. Unless women are allowed to wrestle in greater numbers, the sport will never have a permanent spot on the global stage. Rick Mace is a sports reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more content about the election, check out the Post's election podcast feed with stories from Post Reports as well as The Daily 202 and Can He Do That? Search Election 2020 on your podcast app or go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 